called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I have delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he bless that word now to us. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, there are those times, I think, in all of our lives or in our relationships with others, with friends or with children, grandchildren, when we warn, when we tell them, don't do this, this is unwise, don't be this way, this is dangerous, whatever, maybe it's a friend of ours that drives maybe too carelessly. Maybe it's a, a friend who's, who's dating a, a fella that she shouldn't, that this is not good for her. And we say, yeah, do, you really, is, do you really know what you're doing here? But there are times in all of our relationships when we have to say to somebody, I think you need to rethink this. I think you need to, to, to choose a better path. You need to go in a different direction. And, and, and sometimes those friends and sometimes those, those, those moments uh, turn out positive and, and, and that individual rethinks what they're doing and makes wise choices and turns. That's obviously what we all hope for and desire. But there are times when they persist, isn't there? There are times when they persist in their foolishness, in their foolish choices. And then we find ourselves sort of washing our hands of them. We, we sort of go, well, I warned them. I told them. Now they have to learn the lesson on their own. Now they have to learn the hard way. And that's something that, that we experience, I think, often in life. And that's something that we experience not only in our relationship with other people, but we experience also in our relationship with God Himself. There are those moments in our relationship with God where, where the Lord, you might say, says, okay, this is the path you want. This is the choice you want to make. Then I'm going to let you walk it so that you learn something of who you are and also something of who I am. And it's a dark and dismal path to walk. It's a 
terrifying place to be. It is a dangerous place to be. And it is the place that we find at the nation of Israel in our text this morning. The Lord has warned His people. He has told them not to do this thing. They have persisted in it. And so now Samuel calls them all together at Mizpah. Mizpah is probably not a place that really sticks out for us. It's a Hebrew name. We don't really know where it is. And so we just pass over it when we read our Bibles. But Mizpah is actually a place of convocation. It's a place to gather together. Uh, That's what happened already in 1 Samuel 7, verse 5. You'll remember then that Samuel judged all Israel. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And then before that, before the book of Samuel, remember the book of Judges, and you remember the, the story of the book of Judges, or the, that the book of Judges ends with those dark stories, those two dark stories, one of which leads to a, uh, uh, the destruction of a tribe, or almost the destruction of a tribe amongst Israel. You remember the story about Benjamin and how Benjamin was almost destroyed. Well, that began, that almost destruction of Benjamin, of which tribe Saul is a member, that's the irony here, that destruction of Benjamin happened at Mizpah. Chapter 20, verse 1, all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man, the congregation assembled as one man at Mizpah. They come together at Mizpah. This is the place where they go to seek the Lord's face. This is the place where they make serious decisions. This is the place where they come together. A place of convocation and for important decisions. Well, what's the important decision God wants to make with them now? Well, Samuel starts speaking. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. This isn't, of course, just a history lesson. It's not just God reciting what He's done for them. Remember all of these things. No, this is a a defense of God concerning His promises in the covenant. You remember that God makes promises. In a covenant, God embraces His people. God claims them for His own. And He makes for them great promises. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And it is always salvific. It's always redemptive. It's always deliverance. And then this is what you're going to do for me. And it's always praise, worship, and glorify. And now the Lord comes to Israel at Mizpah and He says at this place of convocation, this historically significant moment, He says, listen, I have kept covenant. I have kept my word. I have done what I said I would do. I delivered you. I saved you. I protected and preserved you. I have kept covenant, says the Lord. But you have not. Listen to those words of verse 19. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. What dark words for the church to hear. You have rejected the Lord. Now, it wasn't a complete rejection. Let's not 
misunderstand what the Lord is here saying. The Israelites weren't worshiping Baal at this point, not yet anyway. But they were at that place as a congregation where they were gathered together, you might say, for worship. They were still worshiping God. They were still wanting to worship that God of heaven and earth. They were saying, look, we believe in Him. We trust in Him. He is our God. But we want Him to serve us. We want Him to do our thing. We don't want to walk in His path. We don't want to do what He commands. We don't want to trust His will. We want Him to bless us the way the nations of the world are blessed. We want Him to bless us with a king like the kings of the nations. And the Lord says to His people through His prophet Samuel, He says, that's what's going on here. I'm keeping covenant. I'm doing what I said I would do. And you're breaking covenant. You're violating the terms of our agreement. And in that, of course, is part warning. The Lord saying to his people, this is not going to end well. When you violate the covenant, when you live unfaithfully with the Lord, things go poorly. And a reminder, it's also a call to repentance, that when they stop and realize how foolish they've been and how their choosing of Saul was wrong, the first thing they needed to do was fall upon their knees before the Lord and cry out for mercy which is what we all need to do when we find ourselves in this same place. This word of the Lord is the word to Israel in that time, but it's a word to us in our circumstance of life too. When we, as we do, fail to live up to God's commands, when we choose to live in sin, when we rebel against Him as we all do, then we are to remember this word from the Lord which says, wait, I have been faithful to you. You have been unfaithful to me. In order that we might tremble at the thought of our unfaithfulness to God, who would dare reject God's command? Who would dare violate His covenant? But that we might also then bow before the Lord and cry out for mercy. Which is the thing we have such a hard time doing. Which is the thing that we don't want to do not by nature for the truth is when called to repentance we don't answer the call we double down think of the garden of eden think of how god comes in grace and mercy to find his wayward son where are you he calls out and man does not repent man does not cry out for mercy man blames god man blames his wife man Blames everybody but himself. Think of when we get a little older. Think about as we grow and mature in this life. When we're young, we listen to what dad and mom say. And, and when dad and mom tell us we're wrong, we accept it and that sort of thing. But now imagine that we're teenagers. Imagine that we're a little older. Dad and mom maybe are warning us. Dad and mom are maybe telling us that we shouldn't do these things. Maybe it's a friend who's telling us we shouldn't do these things. But we don't listen. We don't repent. We don't learn. Because it's human nature. It's human nature. Think of the crowds given the choice between Barabbas and Jesus. They chose poorly. Even saying, let His blood be upon our heads because we... Don't make the right choice when faced with the reality of our own brokenness. 
And we all need to hear this truth today in one form or another. Some of us here today may be making this choice even now, wanting to be more worldly with its freedom or what we think is its freedom, though it is in fact slavery. We want to be free from the constraints of faith. We want to be free, living without guilt, without rules, without the demands of organized religion. That's the way to go, we think. And we need to hear this warning that when we violate the covenant of God, We are not blessed. We are under judgment. Some of us today may be suffering from choices that we've made. Choices that we made in the past of rebellion. We didn't heed the warning of the elder, of our parents, of our friends. And now we're suffering the consequence. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a spouse that doesn't trust us. A child that doesn't respect us. A friend that doesn't come around anymore. Maybe it's the scars of addiction. Maybe it's the financial stresses of poor choices. Maybe we find ourselves diminished in the eyes of others around us because they have learned of what we've done. And the burden of our past sins starts to weigh upon our shoulders. And we grieve. We rebel. We reject. We say, why should I have to bear the responsibility of my actions? Why should I have to suffer just because I made a mistake? Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody is foolish. We try to avoid the press of God's holding us accountable. But what we ought to do, for the only way back into blessedness is to look hard in our mirror and realize we're the reason we're suffering. We were warned and we are being called to repentance Let us listen instead of rebel. You see, that's what the Lord's doing in this passage of His Word. That's what God's doing in this portion of Scripture. He's holding up to us a mirror and He's saying, do you not see yourself in this? Do you not see yourself rejecting me at those times when when a relationship that is contrary to my will becomes your priority? When a choice that is more worldly is your desire instead of submission, instead of sacrifice. Oh, it is so tempting in our world, isn't it, to chase the things of this life, to think we know better, to think that this relationship with this boy that we're dating, that everybody's warned us against, no, we can make it work. The truth is we are being warned and called to repentance. Not so that we can scrub ourselves clean and make everything right, but so that we can recognize just how much of the good King, the great King, the King Jesus Christ we need. That's what our text goes on to demonstrate. God says through His prophet, now present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. The selection process that Saul or Samuel here uses is intended to illustrate that Saul's choice is indeed God's choice. This use of Lot's, possibly of the Urim and the Thummim, 
which were two stones held in the high priest's garments, probably a black one and a white one. You pull, stick your hand in, you can't see which one's in there. You pull one out, and that's the answer. Yes or no. So then you say, Lord, is it the tribe of Reuben? The priest takes out a stone. No. Then is it the tribe of Gideon or Gibeon? No. Is it the tribe of Levi or Simeon? No, no. All the way to, is it the tribe of Benjamin? Yes. And you keep going through all these families and then finally come down, is it Saul? Yes. It's worth noting, of course, that in the history of redemption, the last time this method was used was to choose Achan. Do you remember Achan? Achan, who's called the troubler of Israel. It's a dark connotation. It's a dark connection. The same process was used then. That was the last time it was used. It's now being used again to choose a king. And it suggests that this isn't going to go well. But no one, no one could claim in the end that it didn't go well because Saul pushed himself forward, because there was a faction of the congregation that wanted him to be their man and maneuvered politically to make Saul king. No, Saul was divinely chosen. God says he's our guy. The guy that you want, the guy that you rebel against me with, the guy that you think is going to bless you but he won't, this is exactly that guy, says the Lord. Although there's a bit of a wrinkle, Saul can't be found. Which again, doesn't bode well, does it? He's been spoken to by Samuel. He's been told by the prophet. He's even been anointed and given those confirming signs. You remember those signs that he was given, that the donkeys were safe? He was given food and then he was given the Holy Spirit to prophesy. Saul had been told in no uncertain terms that God had chosen him, that God would bless him and would provide for him all that he needed in order to fulfill the task that he was given. But instead of responding in gratitude, Saul hides. Now maybe Saul's being humble. Maybe Saul's not wanting to push himself forward. But maybe this is another of the pattern of Saul's shirking his responsibility of not stepping up when called upon, of not being the one that he needs to be. That happens a lot in his ministry. This tallest man of Israel He's going to meet a tall man soon enough. We know him as Goliath. And then again, Saul will not be found. Saul will not be able to deliver his people, will not be able to protect and preserve his church. He has to get dragged out from behind the baggage in order to be identified as king. And when he is, and Samuel says, well, here he is, guys. Behold, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. That's enough for the people. They see this attractive, this strong, tall, able man. They say, that's our guy. That's him. The Lord had just finished saying, Oh, by the way, by choosing this guy, you're rejecting me. And Israel says, well, reject away because look at how good-looking he is. And that is, again, another demonstration of the truth of our own fallen condition. That is another way in which we as God's people are exposed for our brokenness 
and for our foolishness. Because we are no different than Israel in this day. We are no different in this day when it comes to our seeking those to bless us, to lead us, to give to us what it is that we want, whether it is in politics. Surely in politics you see now how it is all about appearance, not about substance at all. Human nature longs to be inspired by the attractive, no matter how foolish the leader is. And not just in politics. In life generally. In life generally, we desire the attractive. We desire that which appeals to us. That's what we want. That's what we think will make us happy. That's why those who write commercials and ads, those who sell us products, know exactly how to present the picture so that we think if we have that item, if we have that object, if we purchase that vehicle, that watch, that phone, that whatever, then our life will be great. Buy the lottery ticket so that you can be free. And we believe it. That is the nature of man. To seek blessing from things other than God and especially attractive things. That which is beautiful is good. That which is ugly is bad. The Lord holds up a mirror and says, do you not see this is human nature? Then why does the Lord get Himself so involved in the selection of Saul? The choosing of Saul by lot And then the writing of the law by Samuel. Think of a moral code, a bill of rights, almost a constitution, you might say. Wherein Samuel says, this is what God's will for your life, Saul, is. The turning of some men, men of valor, to serve the king, even as the condemnation of worthless men who say, well, we have nothing to do with this king. All of that demonstrates the hand of God at work in Saul. And shouldn't shouldn't the Lord have just stepped back? Shouldn't the Lord have just said to Israel, I've warned you. I've warned you repeatedly. You keep persisting in this. And you've no one to blame but yourself. I'm washing my hands of it. Shouldn't the Lord have stepped back so that when it failed, the people would have no one to blame but themselves. And we really need to think this one through. And we need to sit for a moment with a bit of self-reflection in light of this Word. Take a moment to look at our world and our culture. Do we not see how the choices of our co-workers, neighbors, unbelieving friends, do we not see how they ultimately make self-centered destructive choices politically relationally financially we watch them we who know the truth we watch them and we wonder why why do you keep making the same mistake over and over and yet why are we we who know the truth of man's rebellious heart Why are we ever surprised to know or to see how our world is filled with people who think they know better 
than God. Now, to be sure, we don't even need to look at anyone else. We don't even need to look outside of these walls. We can look just within. Because the truth is, we don't mind the mentality of our world. Which mentality teaches us to blame everyone else. Workers, we're told, are oppressed by employers. The 1% is undertaxed and the middle class is overburdened. Women are mistreated. And the white Christian male is the bane of our cultural existence. That is the spirit of our age. And do not miss that those thoughts begin to filter even into the church. It's not my fault. Why should I suffer? It's the responsibility of someone else. Let them take responsibility. It's the most natural thing. Adam threw his wife under the bus. The, white, uh, the woman blamed the serpent for what happened. We blame the police officer who pulls us over. We blame our parents and their strict rules. We blame our wife and her endless nagging. I wouldn't drink or smoke or do pot if it weren't for the stress of my business. If you hadn't, if they hadn't, if it hadn't been done this way or, the, or that way, then my life would be better. We become discontented, we become angry, we become frustrated, we become finger pointers. And our bitterness grows and grows. Even that lovely, I'm on my last nerve and you're standing on it, or don't talk to me until I've had my first coffee, is a way for us to put the onus of our responsibility and our actions on something or someone else. We do it instinctively. And if the Lord had, in fact, washed His hands of, <coughs> of Israel, if the Lord had left Israel to her own devices and said, fine, fine, you pick the king you want. I'm washing my hands of this. What would have happened? The tribe of Benjamin, or the, rather the tribe of Reuben, would have blamed the tribe of Benjamin for pushing forth their guy, the tribe of Judah would have been the ones who said, wait a minute, it should be our guy. The Ephraimites would have said, you know, you know what, I, I think I know what went wrong. It was that, that we didn't select him the right way. Let's try this again. Let's try it again because if we try it again, it'll work. And that, isn't that what we hear repeatedly in the culture in which we live? Let's try it again. We'll try it again because it'll work. That's what man believes. Man goes, okay, it blew up in our faces, but I think I know why. Let's do it again. Oh, socialism didn't work for 70 years in Russia? I think I know why. Let's try it again. Do it my way this time. It'll work. We do the same thing in relationships. We make the wrong choice. It blows up in our face. That's okay. I'm going to, I, know, I think I know what I, I learned my lesson. I'm going to do it again. That's the problem with us is we never ever believe that we are the problem. So by involving himself in the selection process, the Lord sets up the end from the beginning. When everything goes south, and it is really going to go south, it will, neither, it will either have to be the Lord's fault. Israel will say, wow, Saul is a bad king. 
God made a bad choice. They'd either have to blame God, which is a terrifying thought. Would anyone dare to do that? Who would stand before God and say, this is your fault? You're the reason we're here. Or Israel would have to say, this is our fault. God just gave us what we wanted. He gave us perfectly what we wanted. And that's why the Lord chose Saul the way he did. So that in time, Israel would stop and say, this is on us. This is, this is our fault. Not so that we could choose better, not at all. The Lord doesn't want Israel to stop and go, you know what, we need to make a better choice. Let's try again, let's make a better choice. What Israel wants the Lord, or what the Lord wants Israel to do and what the Lord wants us to do is to stop and go, you know what, we keep making the same mistakes. We keep making the same choices. We keep making the same selfish decisions. We keep following the same patterns. We keep walking in the same path. We keep falling on our face because of our selfish attitudes and activities. So that we stop and say with the publican of old, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So that we stop justifying. So that we stop diminishing our failure. So that we start listening to God. Because in the end, God is that faithful God. The Lord who says, I brought you up out of Israel, or I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. There's the gospel in that. God says, I keep my covenant because I'm a covenant keeping God, and God's way is always better, always better than our way. And the Lord would have Israel stop relying on her own wisdom, stop relying on her own choices, stop relying on her own desires, and start saying, Maybe we should follow the Lord because He is faithful and gracious and good. And His choice is a better choice than all. Isn't that, isn't that what we need to be confronted with even today? We who make choices in our work, in our relationships, in our schooling, in our witness to the world, so often that our self-centered choices. And we would do better to stop for a moment Bow our heads in prayer and say, Lord, lead me and guide me in the way of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, because I know, I know that you're faithful. I know that your way is right. I know that your way is good because it leads to the cross of Calvary, because it leads to the empty tomb, because it leads to your Son seated at your right hand. Your way is always better. That's what God wants His people to come to. Not well, let's try harder this time. We'll get it right. But let's stop trying and start trusting. Let's stop relying and let's start pursuing the Lord of grace and glory. The Lord wants His people to trust in Him and in His will and word. To turn us to Christ who alone can truly bless everything. We need today to acknowledge this in all of our lives. I make really bad choices. And God's way is always good. In Jesus Christ our Lord. And we need to answer the call 
of his word. Let's do that in prayer. So we pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you to ask for a blessing upon that word that has been proclaimed. A word that challenges us, Lord, because it holds up the mirror of your law and it shows us who we are. We are the people who make poor choices. Help us, O Heavenly God and Father, to admit that. If we're bearing up under the consequence of poor choices, help us to stop blaming others and help us to start saying, I did this to myself. And in that attempt and effort, Lord, to make things better by our own wisdom and strength, help us to stop and help us to say, Jesus, guide me. Lead me in the way of everlasting life. And Lord, for those among us who think that they do know better, who think that they don't need Jesus Christ, convict and convince them that you are the gracious, faithful, loving God. You are better than everything this world has to offer by far. And help us to walk in your way. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our song of response is Psalm 145. We're going to sing the D setting. And the stanzas one, two, three, and then six. It's a song.